What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dallas Debt Discussion for Monday night. It is May 23rd, 2016. Uh, the kids are pretty much done with school around here and, and many areas of the country. If they aren't done, they're heading toward, toward it rapidly, and uh, you won't have the school zones to drive through for a while, which will speed up transportation a little bit. But uh, it's, uh, the summer is rapidly approaching, and, of course, next weekend, many places, the pools will open, including the pool here where I live. So, Mine's one, open. <laughs> Yeah, yours has already been open. You you you're jumping the gun, Terry. I know. I don't waste any time. It doesn't That's last right. long enough as it is. Yep. Well, I do want to uh welcome everybody and of course I got to do this disclaimer and let everybody know that this is Dallas Debt Discussion. That means we discuss debt debt issues, consumer protection statutes, use of the courts, and sometimes a few other things, but the one thing we don't do we don't have a clue how to do is to give legal advice. So if anything that you hear when we have these discussions on this call, you construe or take as legal advice, you're making an error. Uh, it is a mistake because we don't give legal advice. We don't know how. Once in a while we have an attorney that will come on and identify themselves as an attorney. And if they so choose to give uh, some advice to people that could be considered legal advice, well, then that's great, but the, generally that doesn't happen uh, a whole lot. We do have attorneys that uh, are on our calls on a regular basis, make no mistake about that. And we'll tell you that there are attorneys that listen to our calls from both sides of the fence. We do have uh, some uh, attorneys that do represent the debt collection industry, the creditor industry, that listen to our calls, and they're welcome. We have nothing to hide in what we do. We just want them and their clients to uh, not violate our rights. And that's what we discuss in large part is uh, people's situations where their rights are violated, and we discuss how you can deal with that situation, how to, first of all, identify if your rights have been violated, but second of all, help you identify what you can do to hold these people accountable, whoever they may be that violate your rights. So, uh, and. Unfortunately, it happens all the time with the debt collection industry. That's just the nature of their business. They, uh, they're a bunch of greedy folks uh, in uh, large part. And uh, the bottom line is uh, the great, 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 great majority of them do not operate within the law. They just don't because if they had to, they couldn't make any money. So bottom line is no legal advice here. That's the way it works. Now, the way TalkShoe works, for anybody new that comes on the call, and we have new people all the time that come and listen to us, TalkShoe, uh, as far as muting and unmuting, is a simple toggling feature. When you come on this call, you're unmuted. And I ask everybody to mute themselves by hitting star six. That will uh, 
Mewtwo using the system. And when, if you listen to it, when you do that, it'll say, you are muted. And if you hit star six again, it'll say, you are unmuted. So it's actually telling you where you are. Please have yourself muted, because if you don't mute yourself and make noise, I'll do it. And I don't want to have to do that. But uh, we, uh, we get a great group of people on the call. We have for seven years, and uh, the middle of June will be seven years that we've been doing this, and I'm here every single Monday night to run your call. Notice I said it's your call. It always has been your call. This isn't my call. It never has been, never will be. I'm simply the one that makes it happen, schedules it, pushes the button, directs the traffic, but this call belongs to everybody out there that listens and hopefully benefits from it. That's the whole purpose. It's about education, it's about learning, and it's about it's about us sharing knowledge and helping each other. Coming back and building a community of us instead of individuals, there's strength in numbers, and if we work together, we can accomplish far more than we can individually. So with all that said, uh, we start with good news, always. Uh, we like to hear about the good things that are happening with people, and that can entail anything from arranging a settlement to getting a settlement check to having a good outcome in a hearing or, uh, you know, motion practice before the court. Maybe uh, you want a, a uh, motion to dismiss situation and your case get, goes forward, or possibly you want a summary judgment or the other side was uh, kept from uh, the court ruled in your favor and did not grant them summary judgment, and, and then they have to go to uh, trial and actually have to prove their case if they've sued you. So it, it can be an awful lot of different things. But, you know, we hear enough of the garbage, so we always start with good news. And if anybody has any good news, all you have to do is speak up. You do not have to hit star eight, which will put you in the queue. And that's what we do once we're done with good news is for anybody that does have a question or wants to make a comment, all you have to do is hit star eight in the keypad on your phone, and that will raise your hand, and I will call on you in the order that uh, you raise your hand. Now, we know this time of the year there's less callers because there's lots of things going on with families and all that stuff. And it may turn out that if we don't have as many people uh, asking questions, that uh, the call will be a little bit shorter tonight. And if that's the case, that's okay. We're here for anybody that needs the help and wants to learn. And one other thing I do want to add before we go into the good news is when we talk about a website, we, we may ask, and when I say we, I'm talking about the moderators, myself, Jeff, John, Terry, uh, and by the way, we are all litigators. We all litigate in federal court. We all have uh, varying degrees of experience in federal court. And so we're not just talking uh, off the cuff. We're not talking BS stuff. Oh, well, I read something somewhere, and I'll spit it out and tell you. No, we, we actually do this ourselves. <clears throat> and uh, if we don't have an answer to a question that somebody uh, brings up, we'll tell you we don't know. And what we'll try and accomplish is to point you in a direction where you will be able to find, uh, hopefully be able to find the information that you need uh, to get the answer to your question. But we're not here to impress anybody. We're not here to you know, sound like we're know-it-alls because we're not. We're not experts. We're people just like you. A few years ago, we didn't know anything about this stuff. 
we, none of us have been to paralegal school, none of us have been to law school, but we know how to read. We know how to study, we know how to listen, we know how to learn. So uh, please keep that in mind when you hear us talking about the various issues. Uh, we definitely don't have all the answers. I want to be the first one to stand up and say that. And there's no egos involved in those of us that work as moderators uh, on this call. And, and by the way, every single thing that we do is free. But the website we talk about is Jesse's website, and the way you can get to his website is very simple. You open a browser, you type in knockoutcollectors.net, that'll take you to Jesse's website. And to become a member and have access to everything, yes, websites don't occur free of charge. There is a minimal cost to be a member, but the best part is there's a great guarantee with it. But when you go to that website, you'll have a, uh, a big red button in the center that says, Join Now. All you got to do is click on that, and it's going to cost you a bunch of money up front to get in there. Uh, you got to go raid your piggy bank for a dollar. It's a dollar for the first week. After that, for as long as you want to be a member, it's $49 a month. And that can be one month, six months, three years, five years. We have people that have been with us since day one. And, Dave, I do have somebody who is looking for a partner. Okay, very good. I was just going to mention that. Um, memberships can be split, and I'm talking about what Terry just mentioned. There are two IP addresses available for each membership. So uh, we have some people, you know, we know a lot of people are really tight on money. And uh, Terry helps uh, coordinate uh, putting people together. We have people that share memberships, so it actually gets you down to twenty-four fifty a month uh, to be a member and have access to all the stuff in the, in the website. But the, the thing I want to impress upon everybody is the fact that you have a 60-day money-back guarantee when you join the website. You can use that for two months, and for whatever reason you decide that, oh, well, maybe there's too much information there. Maybe you don't want to work that hard or, you know, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Uh, you can ask for your money back. You get it. Jesse doesn't even know about it until afterwards. But uh, there's a full-time webmaster involved. There's webinars involved. None of that comes free, so there has to be a cost to it. It's not about making money. It's about having the information available so that people can study it. There's more information than you can imagine. There's nothing else like it on the web. I can safely say that. There is nothing remotely like this on the web that has the quantity and the quality and the updated information that's on here on everything from foreclosures to dealing with uh, lawsuits against you to using the federal courts to asset protection, you know, protecting your money. Excuse me. Uh, but there's lots of stuff there. And like I said, it only costs you a dollar uh, to get in there. But these calls are not a, a replacement for that. And that's one point I do want to make to everybody, especially new people. Um, if you think you can get the information you need to take care of the situations that you have just by listening to a few of these calls, you're only kidding yourself. And more than likely, you're going to put yourself in a position where you get just enough information to be dangerous to yourself. And, uh, of course, you know, that's not what we want. We want to see all of you uh, be in a position where you have success in yeah. what you're doing. And you have to have enough information to do that. So, um, 
A membership is very, very important. And then the reason we have calls on Monday night, which obviously we're right here. Tuesday night there's a call if there isn't a webinar for members. And then Wednesday night Terry has a call. And these are all to help you fill in the blanks and uh, answer your questions on how to fit the information that you learn from the website into the situation, or maybe I should say fit your situation into the information you learn on the website so that you can be effective in what you do. And we have a lot of people that have had tremendous success in the courts. And when I say tremendous success, that runs anything from uh, being paid multiple six figures in settlements um, for telephone calls, for debt collection issues, uh, in foreclosure situations. Jesse himself has personally won three foreclosure trials on his own properties in the last two years, two and a half years. Um, I don't know of anybody else that's done that. So, um, you know, we don't have all the answers, but we got a lot of them. Bottom line is the information is here for you if you want it. If you don't want it, that's okay. We don't get paid for doing this. We we donate our time three three nights a week and one afternoon a week. Every Wednesday afternoon there's a webinar for uh, uh, our members. So, you know, there's lots of resources here. We don't do it for you, but we'll help you along the way so that you have the information you need or know where to find it to uh, be able to uh, deal with your situation. So without further comment, I'm going to see if anybody has any good news. And I know Terry is at the top of the list that she wants to tell everybody about her good news. And it is. No, it's not good news. It's fabulous news. So it's all yours, Terry. Oh, yeah. I, I forgot. <laughs> the last week was after my call on Monday. Right. Last week was after your call. So all the people who are not members of the website wouldn't have been on Tuesday night's call. Um, we had oral argument at the 11th, and it was... Well, for any new people, you, you need to explain a little more, a little more detail as to what you're talking about. Okay, uh, I have an appeal in, against uh, Midland, Midland, and Encore, the uh, three-headed beast, and it's uh, based on the uh, S2B failure to investigate uh, properly, dispute, impermissible pulls, uh, violation of the uh, federal rules of procedure at the lower courts, and uh, the FDCPA on um, what they have to do in response to oral dispute. Um, and those are the four main issues. Of all those issues, the least important to me, uh, to us, my, I'm a team with the, the attorney I hired for the, for the appeals court, um, was the FDCPA issue. Originally, it was put into the case as clue. Uh, as we often do, just in case the court, you know, kicked out uh, one of the FCRA cases or, bo or, or allegations or both, you know, we had our, our FDCPA issue, which also provides for fee shifting for attorneys if I had decided to bring an attorney in at some point, uh, which I did. But the first two and a half years, I was on my own. 
and did all that. Well, um, the briefing was all done on both sides, and we were just waiting for a decision by the court, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, the 11th Circuit called for oral argument. And that was just, like I said, out out of left field. We we didn't expect that at all. Well, and and neither side had asked for oral argument. Well, both sides had stated it was not necessary. Right. So that's why it's a bit of a, a, a shocker when they ask you for it. You know, like, whoa, what do they want to do that for, right? There must be something going on when they want you to appear because they want to be able to ask you questions. Right. And the best you can do at normally, and, and I'm going to say this 90% of the time at least, in regard to uh, circuit courts and oral argument, the best you can hope for is to try to, you have to know the other side's case as well as you know your own, know your own issues that you have brought before the appellate court inside out and backwards, know the case law you have cited and the case law they have cited, and be able to point the court in the record to whatever it is, and you don't know what it is, that they may ask you about. Now, that's no small feat in itself, and <clears throat> but that's what you must do. And the most you can hope for to walk away from normally in, a, in an appeal, oral argument, is to have some kind of feeling for which way you think the cat is going to jump off the fence in the end. And you hope that by the questions, the manner of the judges, the attitude of the bench, what questions are asked of both sides, um, that you can gauge what uh, you think, where you think the court is leaning. And so naturally, we went into it with no expectations beyond that, no absolute knowledge of what it was they were going to want to know from either side. Um, But we read Scalia's book. In fact, we both, thanks to Dave and another member, we both have a copy of that now, Making Your Case, The Art of Persuading Judges. And we studied it diligently, the lawyer, Craig and I, and we prepared ourselves according to Scalia. And Scalia always recommends that you, at every single time, address your most important issue first, because both sides get to speak. You get 15 minutes each side. But the appellant, which would be me, we get to talk first. And if we want to reserve five minutes of our 15 for rebuttal, we can have the first word and the last. And that's what we decided to do. So you always want to have your very most urgent, strongest point first. In my case, that's the S2B. The second strongest was the breaking of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Third was permissible purpose. And then the last and least important one was the FDCPA issue. So we go in prepared for all that, 
And believe it or not, uh, just before we went in, Craig said to me, you know, they pro- we probably won't get there. They'll probably never ask about it. But he said, maybe we should review, you know, the FDCPA issues just in case we get asked about it. And because we had gone over everything else with a fine-tooth comb over the weeks and and preparation and meeting over dinner and stuff the night before and in the car or the shuttle on the way to the court. And uh, so I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe we better. Believe it or not, imagine our surprise when we walk in and our turn comes up and he goes up there to start his argument. He starts in on his oral argument. He didn't get through a first paragraph on the uh, S2B and the court interrupted him because see you always run that risk the court's got questions and they don't mind using up your 15 minutes so all of a sudden they've got questions and they don't want to talk about any of that stuff they actually say yeah yeah we know that's your most important issue you're right it's your strongest one but we want to talk about something else we want to talk about your weakest one because that's where we're, we need a little clarity, and we're, we're not quite clear on that. That was out of left field. We never saw that coming. And all they wanted to know was, and I found this very, very interesting, the judge said after Mrs. Hinkle's, uh, and, and it wasn't word for word, I don't remember word for word, but after Mrs. Hinkle's dispute orally, they put a tagline in the trade line in her credit report that stated the consumer disputed that item. Isn't that all they have to do? Aren't they in compliance then? And Craig said, in some cases, yes, Your Honor. But in this case, we disagree. And the judge said, well, uh, enlighten us. Uh, How exactly is that not enough in this case and that is when he explained to them that the trade lines they put that tagline on had been disputed they knew they were fully aware beforehand from the very beginning that neither of those trade lines was verifiable one contract was time barred Um, They could only go back to the seller for two years, and it had been pushing four years then. And the other one, they had entered into a contract which totally prohibited them from going to the original source of the records, um, even under a court subpoena. And... He said, under those circumstances, neither of those trade lines should have been in the credit file after the dispute because under the law, they had two choices, verify it properly or delete it. So the tagline is irrelevant. It's on a false uh, trade line that they know to be inaccurate unverifiable and that was all the judge wanted to know which really changed everything 
So then they were very, very polite, um, and that discussion used up a good bit of his 10 minutes. So he went back to his oral argument, and he was able to cover most of what he had wanted to say about the S2B, <coughs> excuse me, and the issue with the violation of the federal rules of civil procedure, which were the, their refusal, outright refusal for two and a half years to submit 26A1 disclosures or to answer my questions as to what human being was in charge of the records and et cetera, et cetera. Then they trotted out an affiant, which the lower court relied on 100% to do their uh, ruling on summary judgment, and none of it was admissible, and they should have been sanctioned. So uh, he got to that part, and he said, so they were in major violation of Rule 26A1 and Rule 37. And the judge said, yeah, 37C, we know. In other words, we know, and that's the easy way out, and we don't want it. We had put that in the appeal, so the court did have an easy way out. If they didn't want to do all this work, spend all this money, time, and resources on this appeal, all they would have had to do was reverse and remand on those grounds, sanction them, and pick up from there. But they didn't want to do that. So that told us um, the court finally does want to weigh in on these issues. They've been um, denied that opportunity six times before in cases that were so poorly pled that they couldn't get there. So I was just in pretty much in shock at that point. And Craig sat down and the other side got up and it just went downhill for the other side from there. Um, and you just can't imagine our surprise when the lawyer from the other side started to state that this case was about uh, their automated dispute process and how uh, what they did was perfectly reasonable because and at, because they did the only thing they could do because the dispute was so scant and on and on and on. And as soon as he said that, one of the judges, who is normally the head judge, but they had said she wouldn't be speaking because she had a very bad case of laryngitis, so she was saving her voice for the most pertinent questions, and all of a sudden she found her voice. And she said, so what, what you did, what did you do? You checked your worthless records, and that's all you did. And boy, I'm sitting up, I'm paying attention to that. And then he continued to go on about how scant the dispute was. And I don't know, a lot of the callers on this call will not be aware that the other side tried to um, put false evidence into their brief. They cut and pasted a screenshot, just a clip, off of another dispute letter from a prior year and a completely different account to demonstrate that the dispute was scant beyond scant, and that was their argument. But I caught it 
when they did it, and because they're my letters, I know it was in there, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not that's not the letter, and so I was able to discover what they had done. I wrote a letter to the CFPB about something else, but that was mentioned in there. So they knew they were busted. So they asked the court, you know, said there was an inadvertent mistake. They needed to correct and put the correct document in and wanted to amend their brief. The court ruling was you get to fix your mistake, but you don't get to fix your argument. So they're stuck with the argument that it's beyond scant. Well, when he brought that up in the court, she said, uh, what exactly did Mrs. Hinkle say in her letter? Oh, I don't know offhand. Well, uh, I need to know exactly what she did say. What do you say was, was scant and, and uh, in, incomplete in her dispute? So he had to get the assistant to get the real letter out, and she had him read it in court. And the letter stated, I have no contractual obligation to this company, no business relationship with this company, and this is a false claim of account. And after he read that, she said, well, what else was she supposed to say? What possible thing could she possibly say? Um, That's pretty clear. It's not hers. What did you expect her to do? And that's when he said, well, you know, the 7th and the 8th and the 2nd circuits have accepted that a consumer can be uh, asked to fill out a fraud affidavit, but she wouldn't do it. And the judge said, yeah, because she didn't have to. And the other judge said, and how exactly, explain to me how that would help your investigation. What good would a fraud affidavit do you? What does that tell you? And he couldn't answer. So then the other judge, he said, he, he went to the, the contract, and he, he was talking about Midland buys portfolios of accounts. And the judge with a laryngitis said, you do not. You don't buy accounts. You buy a line item on a spreadsheet. And the other judge said, oh, and how many sellers were there between the original creditor and you? And they had to admit then, four that we know of. And that's when the other judge said, so you don't even know how how much, if what, or when, or how many times that information in that line item was changed from its origination until it ended up in your hands, do you? And, of course, they couldn't answer that either. <laughs> and she had said, and not only that, your worthless records were bought as is, without recourse or warranty. And he tried to say, no, 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 there's another clause. In, in, and she said, and, and, your, and your company was prohibited from going, even going to the original creditor, even under court order. And he said, no, there's another clause in the contract, and blah, blah, blah. And 
she lets him read it, this this little clause in there about going back to the cellar and so on and so forth. And she said, well, so what? I guess that means if you lose here today, you can sue the cellar, right? That's up to you. And at the end, before uh, Judge Marino finally had something to say when we got just at the end of the other side, 15 minutes, the last thing that judge said to their side was, well, I guess now you can sue the seller. It's your contract. I don't care. And boy, well, and right. then and then didn't they extend uh, the the time that uh, the other side was up there to almost oh, twenty yeah. minutes because they wanted to talk about permissible purpose then too? Yeah, right. When see that was the last thing she had said, and their time was up. See, there's when you're in there, there's like this two foot by one foot big clock, digital clock with red letters, huge, that count down your time. The whole room can see this counter. And so you know where you are in your allotted time, and you better shut up when it gets to zero, right, unless court's talking. Well, they got to zero, and they were out of time, and the lawyer, <laughs> you could tell, he, he wants to get the hell out of there. He's been flayed, and... um he goes to pack up, and the middle judge, the one that was acting head judge for that day, because Judge Hall had laryngitis, she said, wait a minute. She said, we we have one more thing. We didn't talk about this. I want to talk about this other issue. We didn't talk about permissible purpose, this allegation. And so he was stuck. And that was another, like 20 minutes over time, she grilled him on where Midland gets off thinking they have an innumerable permissible purpose. And the guy says, well, Your Honor, that the credit report was obtained for uh, in connection with collection on the T-Mobile account. And, and Judge Hall pipes up and says, yeah, the one that belongs to nobody. That's not her account. How can you have a permissible purpose when there is no account? Then, Judge Gold started reading off of something in front of her, which was the exact language I have used, um, which everybody who has read the FCRA fatal flaw document would know that that was the exact language I had used, uh, as to the definition of account. And that's the information that was used in the Capetta case and Doug Bertha used up there in, in New Hampshire. And they brought up the Capetta case, didn't they? Um, no, it was they were using the Capetta arguments. They didn't say okay. Capetta. Okay. Right. No, it came right out of Capetta, though. Okay. And uh, because, see, I had brought that to the court's attention. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, she's reading my language to this guy on the definition of account in the FCRA. And she said, so you don't meet that definition. Because then he tried to say that, okay, I don't have any standing anyway because I said it's not my account and therefore it it can't be uh it, it can't fall under the FDCPA or the FCRA because it's got to be 
uh, personal, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, personal uh, and, and household family use. Right. And, uh, you know, Judge Hall pointed out, no, she didn't need to make that determination. You did. And that was your claim. And you went after her for something that wasn't her, so yes, she does have standing. And then Judge Black said, and you don't meet the definition of account. So that showed me, oh my God, they want to finally rule on just exactly when does a debt buyer have a permissible purpose as opposed to a a traditional collector, as we have pointed out, and the FTC has pointed out, and I use the FTC's language straight out of 40 years, Doc, they can do it on behalf of a creditor, but now the judge, the court has pointed out, there is no account, there is no creditor, all you did was buy a bunch of junk line items on a spreadsheet. So I can tell you that when we left that courtroom, we were in a daze. We were in an absolute daze. All we expected to be able to walk away with was a good idea, maybe, of which way they were going to go. But when we walked out of there, I thought, I don't think there's any doubt. The court was so uh, respectful to Craig, uh, one of the very first things that they asked the other side when the other side got up was Hinkle versus Midland. So is Hinkle a he or a she? And Craig and I had come in, and and quite by accident, I swear, it was not on purpose. (laughs) But we ended up dressed like we had planned our wardrobe to go to some fancy gathering um, because we were color-coordinated and and Craig was looking all sharp, and we were sitting right next to each other in the front row, and there was no one else in that row. So when Craig got up to go up to the bar, that left me sitting in that front row by myself. And when they said, is it a he or a she, and the lawyer said, oh, it's a she, all three judges looked directly at me. And it was like they made eye contact with me. Oh, and she is in the court. So after that, every time they ripped him up or used my arguments and Craig's briefings against them, they looked directly at Craig. They looked directly at me. They gave me eye contact. They gave me respect. Just I couldn't believe it. And And for a pro se to be paid that kind of respect from the circuit court, is huge. Well, and yeah, and Terry, when they addressed, were talking about you uh, to Craig, they either said, well, Mrs. Hinkle or your client, and what right. did they say about the Midland lawyer? Every single time they referred to Midland, uh, when, they're, when they were grilling the other lawyer, they said, you did this, you did that, your records. Your worthless records. You can sue the seller now if you want. I guess that's up to you. Um, it was you, 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 as if the lawyer was Midland. But whenever they referred to me, it was either Mrs. Hinkle, your client, <clears throat> excuse me, 
never you this, you that to Craig. They gave him every respect, and he did such a beautiful job. But as we walked out the door, <laughs> Craig looked at me, and, and he said, the briefing did it all. And and I said, yes. You know, finally, I'm always, always hammering to everybody, to all you guys on the call, that you have two things to do in litigation. First, you have an obligation, an obligation to compose yourself in a way that you um, help to reverse the very bad reputation pro se's have with the courts. It's well-earned, uh, and you must remember that all the time in your actions and in your presentation, in your behavior. That's the first thing. But it's always, always your case and nobody else's. And your job, whether you have an attorney or you don't, is to get that court to see that case through your eyes. And I learned through this experience, because it's been a few months ago that I started to think like a judge. And then after reading Scalia's book, I was thinking like a judge even more. And the first thing you have to do in order to make the court see your case through your eyes is to put yourself in the shoes of the court. You have to see things through their eyes before you can begin to know how to change their perception to see things through yours. And when this was all over, I can't tell you how it made me feel to know that, and as Craig pointed out to me, Terry, they don't just see it through your eyes, they're living in your head. And that is the goal. Yep, and uh, when Craig called me after you guys got back to the hotel, the very first (laughs) words out of his mouth were, I didn't have to do a thing, the brief did it all. And that's he's exactly his right. first words to me, because that's the way he looked at it. They knew the whole thing, and the only place they had those questions was uh, to clarify that stuff on the FDCPA, and that's why they brought that up. They knew all the rest of it, and they just waited till they had their opportunity, and they ran Midland through the meat grinder. Yeah, they did. And it was like the only the only thing they really even wanted to know from us was what it was from our perspective that would allow them to rule in our favor on the FDCPA. And I did forget one thing. Uh, The male judge, Judge Marino, he was a visiting judge uh, from Florida, and um, he was very, really pretty quiet. uh, Judge Hull, she, (laughs) I could tell it was really hurting her throat. I've suffered that, you know, laryngitis many times over my career and so I know it hurts when you're trying to force your voice to do something that it physically is unable to do at that point but she did to the point of trying to yell you know and she really did most of the talking and he was very laid back uh, very good humor Uh, he made several jokes and the whole court was laughing at Midland's expense it was very hard for me to keep a straight face, not sit there and look like a Cheshire cat. I know it was hard for Craig. Craig said he had a hard time not being able to turn around and look at me, <laughs> also grinning like a Cheshire cat. Um, but Judge Marino waited until the end, and he 
said, and fortunately we had discussed this too, um, Craig and I, because we anticipated that the court, even though when you do an appeal, you do put in your briefing what it is you're asking the court to do, whether that's reverse and remand or uh, reverse and uh, grant in favor of the appellant, you know, on a summary judgment or something like that. You, you have to say what it is you want. But just in case they would ask us orally, we did go over that. And he said, so Terry, you know, um, what do you want me to say? Because ultimately it is what you want um, this court to do. And, you know, I said, well, a reverse and remand sends it back to the lower court and we pick up from there and we proceed to trial. And I get the trial I wanted in the first place. Um, ultimately, what I was after is case law on this S2B and permissible purpose issues and debt buyers. That's what I'm really after. It's what I've always been after for everybody, not for me. It doesn't have anything to do with me. So I said, then we go forward to to a jury. The jury finds against them, and we have a good case that can be used forever. But if the 11th Circuit, and, and they have the power, if instead they want to rule on that issue, and set an objectionable an ob- objective standard for S2B and permissible polls for junk debt buyers under this set of circumstances. In other words, type one disputes with the credit reporting agencies. Then what would go back to the jury is simply the amount they would have to pay. So he asked Craig... Mr. Perry, what exactly is it that your client would like this court to do? And Craig explained, or or the way the judge said it, what would your client, what do you want this court to do? Do you want us to reverse and remand back to a bench trial or jury trial? I don't know which it is. And before Craig could answer, he said, because we could do that, And then um, if it's a bench trial, I mean, you know what will happen then. In other words, you'll be right back here because that idiot judge will do the same thing again. Um, And then Craig said, well, it was a jury trial. She did ask for a jury trial. And the court said, well, or he says we could reverse uh, the lower court's decision on summary judgment and grant it in favor of your client did she file for a summary judgment? And Craig said no. She didn't feel that that was proper uh, because of these issues need to be decided by the trier of fact. And he said, of course, we would accept either way from the court. It was perfectly all right with us. But we would prefer, and we believe the court has the uh, discretion and jurisdiction and possesses the wisdom to simply make a decision on these issues and set an objective standard and send it back to the lower court with instructions for a jury to decide on on the amount. 
uh, in other words, what he was saying to the court is my client and I are perfectly prepared and willing to get the hell out of the way and let the 11th Circuit do what they've been itching to do for the last 10 years. And that's why they asked us that. Now, it's interesting, they did not ask the other side what they'd like. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So now it's just waiting for the ruling on paper and the interesting reading, but the oral arguments are on their way to Terry in recorded form, and I can't wait to listen to them. Yeah, the court, the 11th, there's only three circuits <clears throat> that don't make oral arguments uh, available either by video or MP3 audio on their website, unfortunately. The 11th Circuit has turned it into revenue. They they make it available, but you have to buy the CD. So uh, one of the members um, was loving enough to stay on it, and he called the court to see if it was available yet, and he ordered it and had it shipped to me. So uh, when I get it, I will be playing it for everyone on my one of my Wednesday calls because there is a lot of really good learning to be had from that oral argument and the way the court dealt with issues. Um, very good experience. I can say I'm I'm really glad I had that opportunity that I had that experience. And Craig did such an incredibly good job um, and his whole staff. I have to thank everybody involved. You know, it wasn't just Craig, but another attorney in his office, his secretary, his paralegal. They're just awesome, awesome, efficient people. And they all did. We were a team. We worked together on all of this. And all the team members, including the moderators on this call that have helped me through this case since it it began back in April of 2013. The issue actually started in 2011. Um, It's been a really, really long and difficult road, and I owe a whole lot of thank you to a whole lot of people. But um, I wouldn't trade it for anything, even the bad times, Dave, because I have come out of this with knowledge that I never could have gotten any other way. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And you, uh, I can tell everybody because, you know, Terry and I are, are very close friends. We work closely together on numerous things. And uh, she was has been on an emotional roller coaster with, you know, the ruling against her and the... Uh, uh, the lower court and all that kind of stuff. Um, she has been on an emotional roller coaster that most people just absolutely, they, they just couldn't handle. And uh, she's not only survived that, but she has shown brightly. And when that written ruling comes down, that's going to be something that goes in the books that's going to benefit uh, literally the potential is to benefit millions upon millions of people going forward. That's so, what I was uh, after. That yeah. That's the whole thing. 
And and you know what? That's the reason I would never give up. There were times when it would have been a whole lot easier for me to just throw up my hands and say, I cannot deal with this anymore. You know, it's taken my whole life for the last three years. Well, you were very, 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 very close to that several times. A couple of times, yeah, for sure. Um, We we had conversations. it, It really beat me down. But, you know, and had it been just me, if that was all, then there would have been no reason to just say, you know, this is definitely not worth it. But that's not why I did it. It didn't have anything to do with how much they're going to pay me at the end or self-satisfaction that they didn't get away with their BS. It isn't that. You know, it's it was that that precedent I was after. The benefit that others will derive from your efforts. Exactly. Right. So yep. we got to wait for the official ruling. I have to agree with Dave that I don't think it will be a very long one. Yeah, I've I've told Terry my, just this just my opinion. I may be completely wrong. I don't think it will be an excessively wrong or long written opinion, but I think it is going to be amazingly scathing in what it says. And I don't think that it's going to be a long wait for it either because I truly believe, and of course, you never know, you know, weird stuff can happen. We could be wrong, but I truly believe that they wish to set an objective standard and rule outright on all four issues and send it back to the jury clean just for amount. But I also believe that they had already made up their minds on all the issues except the FDCPA. And even if they had made up their minds to grant in my favor on the FDCPA, they needed the clarification of law in how they could do it. And And that in itself may have been why they called for oral arguments. Yeah, which is something we couldn't have anticipated. And I'm so thankful that that Craig said, maybe we ought to go over this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, for for everybody, you know, there was a, a kind of a lengthy explanation from Terry. But for those of you that that haven't been privy to this, I gave you a real close up view of what happened that day, and I would uh, certainly recommend that everybody uh, keep their ear to these calls, uh, to uh, Terry's call, especially on Wednesday night. And of course, I always give the call information for. Uh, her call, how to make sure you're on Terry's email list. But when she has that recording available for you to be able to listen in when she plays that on her call, because that is is going to be very, very beneficial. It'll be a great teaching tool, one that you we rarely get. Very, very rarely get. And uh, um, if you are of the mind, like I am, that you just love to see uh, the courts grind up and spit out any of the Encore entities, Encore Midland Funding or Midland Credit Management, um, 
it will be very pleasurable listening to that because there's no mistaking what occurred that day. And, of course, most of you know that I'm in litigation with Midland as well. And, and you know, they just picked two of the wrong pro se's. Through all of all of this, and this will be helpful to everyone, I I mentioned that book by Scalia, something it, it teaches rather in depth in a in a short um chapter, is syllogistic arguments, which is something they don't even teach in English classes anymore. And frankly, college was a long time ago for me. And I had forgotten all about uh, that skill. Um, and it just makes so much sense, okay? You take a major point, a minor point, and a conclusion. That's a syllogistic argument, either for or against. And that's what courts really appreciate. It's logic at its core. It's bare bare logic. It is brevity. It is uh, a minimum of language, but it is straightforward and to the point. Well, another book was sent to me of Scalia's, and yesterday I was sitting reading it, and out of nowhere... This book had nothing to do with the syllogistic argument. It was another Scalia book, A Matter of Interpretation, Federal Courts and the Law. And my mind is just going in the background, and all of a sudden it hit me. When you have a situation where you dispute something with the credit reporting agencies, you know one thing, because I've gone over this a million times. The credit reporting agencies have 100%, except for VIP accounts, which are celebrities, politicians, uh, organizations, and stuff like that. Those are VIP people. For all disputes, their system is not only 100% automated, it's sent out of the country for their automated disputes. Their furnishers... On the other end of this automated dispute are also doing at least 95% of all disputes are being made by machines, by, by computers. There's never any human beings involved at all. And they turn around and they verify stuff without any human being ever looking at anything without thinking about anything, without analyzing anything. Now, in certain conditions, like we talked about the Chang and Wester cases that involve original creditors and traditional third-party collectors where they actually have access to the original records, the source documents, an automated dispute can be absolutely reasonable because all the computer has to do is check the data for the accuracy against the records it came from. And that is reasonable. But when you are dealing with a junk debt buyer, no matter who it is, they never have access to source documents, account-level documents, or any human beings who can verify anything. So it cannot be reasonable for a computer to make all the decisions. 
So it popped in my head, wait a minute. You would argue it this way. XXX Inc. has adopted a 100% automated dispute process where no living being is involved at any point in the process. The second argument, the FCRA and the other two consumer protection statutes were written to govern the actions of people, not machines. So the conclusion, XXX Inc. is wholly outside the required compliance with the statute. Very good. I mean, think about that. The laws govern people, not machines. And if they relegate their obligation under the law to a machine, they cannot possibly be within compliance, correct? Yes. Now, like I said, that wouldn't apply to situations where the computer can be programmed to verify the accuracy of information that's being disputed. Because it can access the original creditor records. Exactly. But in any any situation where it can't, we're talking computers here, people. We have not as yet, I'm sure the government has, but we haven't, We do not have access to artificial intelligence, nor does the CRA or the furnisher. They are simple machines that are programmed to respond to certain data in a certain way. There is no reason, no thinking going on, and there's no artificial intelligence. This is just algorithms. Well, congratulations again to you on, on what happened. It's uh, an amazing journey that you've been on, and now we're just going to have to sit and wait for that written ruling. But uh, I can't wait to hear that recording. That's the big thing for me. I want to hear that recording. I, I want to hear the judge, the inflection of the judges' voices. And uh, Your worthless uh, records. You said that more than once. Yeah. <laughs> And that, those words came from multiple judges, did they not? Uh, well, that no, that was uh, ju- oh, Judge, Judge Hall. Hall. She kept ham- hammering that. Okay. Um, because the other judges, they didn't get a whole lot in. Mm-hmm. She her, took the bull her, by the horns and ran with it. Yeah, her with her laryngitis. She was running the show, you know. And the only thing that I can regret about the whole thing is that I wasn't sitting behind the judges so I could see that lawyer's face. <laughs> I could yep. see his body language, and that wasn't good, but you know what I mean? You you can only yeah. see the back of their head. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, congratulations to you. Thank you, Terry. You're welcome. 
All right. If anybody else has any good news, now is the time to speak up. Okay. Well, the only good news I have is I am in negotiations with two different uh, debt collection companies on settlements for TCPA claims. One is uh, in an active lawsuit that I filed, and I'm not speaking Midland here. I'm talking outside of the Midland uh, situation that I have. And uh, one of them is in the pre-litigation stage, so uh, we are negotiating, and we are making some progress. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see how that all shakes out, and if they they can get to the point where I'm satisfied, then we'll have an agreement. If not, then we'll just... Uh, pursue the process because that's what we do. I am going to stand up for my rights. All right, well, if nobody else has any good news for us tonight, then I am going to go to the queue. If anybody has questions or comments about uh, things tonight, uh, star eight is how you put yourself in the queue. And we have Southern California is up to bat. You are unmuted. Go ahead. Hi guys, how's it going tonight? Good. How are you? Doing pretty good. Um, I just have a quick question about uh, reporting. Um, a company called Southern California Edison uh, started reporting on my credit. I disputed this last year in April of 2015, so it's been over 12 months. And when I disputed, actually, I called SCE to ask them about this charge, and it's a $16 debt. And what they did, so the representative, the lady on the other end, she checked all of my previous addresses um, that I've, since I've moved out to L.A., and she didn't see any record. And then she suggested that I dispute on the reports, which I was going to do anyway. Um, and once I did that, they all came back verified. And, and she already told you there's no record of that charge. Exactly. Well, uh, are you preparing your federal lawsuit? <laughs> I am, but I'm not because I don't. It's been a while since I've gotten into the website and things like that, and I'm pretty busy with work. Um, I, I had two questions on that. Should I dispute again? What is it that you want to accomplish, I yeah. think, is, is what we need to really know. What I want is to sue for that reporting for the over 12 months. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's $1,000 a month. Um, but since I disputed, I'm not sure if you guys had any better ways to dispute or anything. I well, should, like, yeah, since you've been away from the website for a while, you need to go. Uh, I redid the What Lies in Your Credit Report series. Just got finished with that a couple weeks ago. Um, and you want to go through what lies in your credit report 2016. And you also want to go through the one I did in November and December called Cleaning Up Your Credit. Because we've changed the process. We've changed uh, the letters and the um, uh, order of them. Exactly how you do things, exactly right. And it would not hurt you at all to go back through those and then do another dispute specifically to the new process and then let them have it. Oh, okay. Because the last time I went through your webinar, the What's Lies in Your Credit webinar, it was 2014. 
Right, and a lot has changed since then, so I redid it. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of new information. It's not just a, a little sprinkle piece here or there that changes. It, it's, it's, it's very substantially different, so it's well worth your time and effort to uh, go through what Terry was telling you. Yeah, see, they've changed their practices, and we have to change our strategies accordingly. Okay. Basically, that's what it boils down to. Okay. So you think that would include having to re... Uh... I think it would be wise to do it because if you redo the dispute, uh, according to the way I lay out in the, in that webinar, exactly as I lay it out in in the webinar, and you redo it that way, you build a foundation that they cannot overcome. They can't beat you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And right. along I mean, with the webinar, just so you know, um, there were downloads of example documents uh, and, and the very specific wording in those documents. All that type of stuff has been updated too. So all of that stuff is in there when you go to the webinar. Right. I made all the case law available. That's in a separate doc downloadable with each episode. Any example letters in how things should be worded and done is there, downloadable which with each of the uh, episodes. In both those series, you need to go through them both and make sure you download the accompanying documents and organize them on your computer so you have everything where you need it. And really, uh, it you shouldn't have any questions once you go through that because, and we had very few, didn't we, Dave? No, almost no questions. That's, you did a fabulous job of covering bases that most people wouldn't have even thought about. Mm-hmm. So it's extremely thorough. Believe me, it is, it's not like, oh, well, it's just a refresher. It's pretty much the same with a couple little wrinkles. Oh, no, 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 no. It's it's a whole different animal. And it's uh, like Terry said, you know, they've changed what they're doing. And how much has Terry learned to win her case. What she learned to make her case is all included in these webinars. So that's why it's so beneficial for people to go through the new stuff. Okay. I mean, I really want to do it, I mean, because it's so clear and cut and dry. Um, and a, a couple, like a lot of cases that I've had in the past, I really wasn't ready or able or, well, you know, or geared up. Don't forget. And I lost out. That's, that's been one year. You still have another year, almost a whole year, uh, before your statute of limitations on on that first, you know, uh, violation, dispute violation happened. So you don't have to be in a big hurry to get out there and get it filed. You've got time to do this learning. Keep an eye on the the clock, though, because you want to do it uh, within 23 months of that... uh, that that violation, that FRA right. violation. That's what's been getting me lately on these cases. I had one before that was perfect too, and they were reporting for a whole year, and I had to let it go because I just wasn't ready. I couldn't find the right people. I mean, I don't know if you guys would even suggest at this point to, to hire an attorney because just the things we do now at this point, it just attorneys just wouldn't even go there. It seems uh, like. they they don't know a few, a handful. Okay, I'm not going to say. They don't all know because now, I mean, I'm so very fortunate. One of our attorney members who who is is studying with us and learning a whole new 
um, area of the law to her is right here in Georgia. She's in Atlanta, and she was at the oral argument. She came to observe. And, of course, Craig is out of uh, Nevada, and we do have a handful of attorneys that work with us and learn with us and from us, and we share. Um, that's very fortunate. So, But other attorneys... It's so common when you walk in, and, and most attorneys who will say that they're in consumer law, that they're, you know, their focus of their practice is consumer defense. Well, all they really know is how to get you through bankruptcy or talk the other side down to a cheap settlement and you pay them. They don't want to hear any of this. It's totally foreign to them, and they don't want to learn something new. You, they look at you like you're speaking Greek. So well, it's it true. I mean, that's exactly it, what's happening right now with an attorney I have, and I'm trying to just wrap it up and just forget about it because that's exactly what happened. Um, you know. But this next one, I don't want to do that. I mean, if I have to go that way, I, I'll go that way. But you know, I was wondering if there's anybody out there who would actually want to. I'm going to get back into the site. I think I have to. You do. If there's anybody I can join the site with, that would be great. Well, that funny you should say that because I just said before we started, the, when we just started the call tonight, I do have someone who is looking for a partner. So send me an okay. email and put in that email looking for a membership partner, and I can hook the two of you up. Okay. All right. All right, that take care of your questions? Yes, it does. All right, very good. All Thank right. you. Thanks a lot. You bet. All right. And I want to say congratulations to Robert out in California. His daughter had her um, wedding this past weekend, and I'm lucky I got pictures. She is a stunning, absolutely drop-dead gorgeous bride. Oh. What, a, what a beautiful family he has. And he should be very proud of it. Congratulations, Robert. Yeah. Very good. All right. Let's go to Texas. That's a familiar place. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing pretty darn good for a Monday night. How are you? Good, good. I got a question for you. I have a judgment on my credit reports, actually all three from a lawsuit I was in a few months ago. And uh, the, the judgment's in the name of the original creditor, obviously, because I was sued in the name of the original creditor. But I just have a suspicion that they disowned that debt long before the lawsuit. What do you mean by disowned? Or sold it. Sold it. Well, because I called them and said, look, do I owe you guys any money? They said, no, this has been moved. Uh, Another entity has this account, which I'm sure doesn't mean that they sold it. Right. I, uh, who who was it that you were dealing with, uh, the attorneys? Uh, Roush Sturm et al. Yeah. Out of Wisconsin. Out of Wisconsin? Uh, the The original creditor was TD Bank. But they, uh, yeah, during yeah, this Yeah, but Roush Sturm is in, they're the Texas law firm. They they have offices in Texas, yeah. Yeah. But I believe yeah, they're out of Wisconsin. 
and uh, during discovery, or I motioned to depose their affiant, and they vehemently opposed that, which kind of also gave me a reason to believe they may have sold the debt. Well, no, they just don't want they don't want their case interrupted. That's all. Right, right. They're yeah. they're playing the game. They're trying to stop you. That's their job. Yeah. Um, is there any recourse through disputing this on my credit report? Uh, I guess you'd have to prove that they don't own the debt, though, right? Well, you needed to have dealt with that in the court before the judgment. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, who was who, uh, you say it was TD Bank was the original creditor? Yeah. 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 Um, they do sell their stuff a lot. Uh, what? And this, this of course, was in Texas State Court. Right. Right. Was, uh, was it in uh, Justice Court or uh, uh, State Court? Small claims, justice. Okay, justice court, yeah. And a lot of those, they kind of like to slam dunk those through. Now, oh, they did. They did, yeah. Now, did you, uh, what, you say that you uh, wanted, engaged in discovery, you wanted to depose their uh, um, affiant. What happened with that? After discovery was over, I put in a motion to depose their affiant. And they put in a motion to quash the the Yeah, because discovery is already over. You can't do it then. Yeah. Yeah, you you have to do that while your uh, while discovery is available. Yeah. Yeah, so you were untimely on that. Yeah. Um Well it was my first lawsuit. I was untimely on a lot of things, but I did learn a lot. I really yeah. Did. Yeah. Um the other thing that you should have done is to have filed a federal lawsuit against them before there was a judgment rendered in the state court case. Yeah. Because you're going to have a much more difficult time dealing with that. I'm not going to say you can't, but you're going to have a harder time dealing with that uh, because they're going to uh, make a big deal out of res judicata. Yeah. And you can't just go into the federal court and say, "Well, I think they bought the debt, or this or that." You know, you uh, you'd have to make your FDCPA claims. You know, they uh, uh, misrepresented the amount or character of the debt, or they did this or that in attempting to collect it. You know, you'd have to deal with that. But like we've always said, you cannot wait until you get a judgment against you in a state court before you file a federal suit because it, it makes it far more difficult for you if you do. Yeah. Well, I know that now. I know that now. Right. Okay. And now here's a simpleton question. Uh, like I'm in the beginning stages of another lawsuit, and it's the same law firm, a different bank, different original creditor. And speaking of the FDCPA, I just can't wrap my, my mind around this. Uh, I do have a claim against them in federal court, I can go ahead and take from the federal court right now for the simple fact that I'm a consumer by definition. The law firm is a debt collector by definition, and they are a party in interest to this suit, right? 
Yeah, more than likely they they are a party in interest because they get a, a percentage of what they collect. Yeah. But so that's my yeah, you, you now had you gone through uh any what kind of debt situation or debt collection situation did you have before they filed the lawsuit? I mean, you know, they uh, did they try and collect from you through letters, threats, and stuff like that? Did you demand validation? Uh, you know, did you follow the processes, or, or where are you on that? Yeah, we went back and forth two or three times, about three debt validation letters, and they just sent uh, customary uh, monthly statements, no signed agreement or anything like that. Now, monthly statements, did yeah. they send every monthly statement from a zero balance all the way to the uh, current? No, no, not at all. Okay. Well, then you know that that's not right. Now, did you say that you've got a federal suit against them already? No, no, but I still have time to go ahead and file one. You definitely want to get that going, yes. Okay. All right. Well, we'll do. We'll do. I sure appreciate the information. All right. Well, okay. if you got questions on, on getting that stuff done as you go forward, uh, uh, let us know. But, yeah, you definitely want to get that because that, that creates a bargaining chip for you in dealing with them in the state case. They don't like federal lawsuits. And the fact that they don't have every single monthly statement from zero balance means that... Uh... Well, they can't... Uh, they're they're just saying, well, well, we're sending a statement here. Well, what was the beginning balance on that twenty seven hundred and twenty seven seventy one thirteen? You know, how did you how, arrive well, did, at that figure? Yeah, how did you come up with that figure? We, you know, yeah. where did that come from? Now, something that I did, you know, you're in Houston, I'm in Dallas. Okay, yeah. I litigate in the Eastern District of Texas, and I succeeded in getting the Eastern District of Texas to adopt the Haddad standard for validation, uh -huh. which means that they have to come up with a complete accounting from day one. How do you spell that, Haddad? Haddad, H-A-D-D-A-D. That's a, a Sixth Circuit uh, decision, but it, to reference it where the court uh, specifically said in the ruling in my case, that the court adopts the uh, in the Eastern District adopts the can't talk tonight Haddad standard for validation, and you can use that because that's a sister district. You're in the Southern District of Texas in yeah. federal court down there, so you can cite my case. It's Progressive Financial Services versus David Mack, and if you want to hang on one second, I'll give you the case number. And you can go and you can look that stuff up in there when you're uh, uh, doing your stuff. And the case number is 4 colon 13 CV 544. All right. Okay, and the, the, where that is, is uh, it'll be later in the docket, the ruling on their, uh, uh, there's stuff in there. They tried to have me de uh, deemed vexatious and have me post a bond and and stuff, and that didn't work. Well, you know, it's interesting about the monthly statements. I was in a, a lawsuit last year against Citibank, and they 
they swore up and down several times. They didn't have the original uh, signed agreement until I hit them in federal court, and they found it like 15 minutes. You know, and they did that in order to get it moved to uh, arbitration. But uh, we settled before that. Yeah. Okay, I'll look at Yep, you look that stuff up, and like I say, you want to get going to that federal lawsuit because that becomes a bargaining chip in that state suit, okay? Okay, thank you. All right, you bet. You're welcome. All right, we're going to go back out to the left coast because somebody in California has their hand up. You're unmuted. What's up, Big D? I knew that was wee-haw. How you doing, baby? <laughs> Just that. I'm doing pretty good for being tired, like I said at the beginning of the call. You guys, just being on these calls with you guys, you just rejuvenate me. Um, it, it just happened so many times in the last seven years. It's just amazing. And, you know, and li- just listening to Terry talk about her case and, and the situation last week over again is, is just fantastic. And, uh, I love it. Well, I always get jazzed up when I hear about people's success or dumb things that attorneys do or... It's kind of like catnip to me when I hear good news. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Oh, yeah. I know. But, uh, I, know. I, I love it. All I wanted to do was make a comment um, specifically to you, Dave, and to Jeff. Oh. Well, specifically today, but I've heard Jeff, Terry, and John, and Larry say it. But um, I just got some paperwork from these idiot bank attorneys um, demurring in state court to a complaint I, I was allowed to amend. And you've said it multiple times and I just want to kind of thank you for drilling it into my head through saying it enough is that I real, I quickly read through this and uh, basically it's BS. <laughs> I'm so surprised. Yeah. Well, <laughs> How can that not? possibly be? <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, let me preface it with um, based on Jesse's webinars and lots of talks with um, Jeff – um, about the deed of trust and how powerful it is and the fact that it's a contract. Um, when I amended, I basically pled contract stuff. And they either didn't read it or they didn't want to deal with it as is. But they quote, case law that's all over the place. They make statements that are in, the, that are in my complaint that are short, plain statements of fact, and they totally go off in another direction about, oh, well, you know, this isn't what he said. And I said, well, yeah, I didn't say that in the complaint. You're making stuff up. Yeah. And their, their, as I said, their case law is extremely scant. And, you know, once again... Um, not relevant. They, yeah, it's not relevant. Or if it is relevant, within that same court case is a statement that proves my case. Mm-hmm. Or they leave parts of a sentence out try and get things going so well, just they're a, trying to obfuscate everything yeah but just more of a big uh thank you and a hats off to the moderators for uh really drilling down and and uh getting to the core issues of what's going on and uh you guys have helped me immensely and i uh, just wanted to make sure you guys knew it That's well all I had to thank say. you thank you i appreciate those comments but you know what all we can do, you know, we're like the ones, the, the people that hang the bird feeder out there. You know, we put the bird feed out, and it's all you chickadees coming and feeding out of the bird feeder. 
and you go get fat and happy from feeding out of the bird feeder and are successful, that's what makes all our efforts worthwhile to us. Absolutely. It's, it's you know, we don't get anything out of this other than the satisfaction of knowing that you guys take what we help offer, and notice I said we help offer. It's it, it's a combination of all of our discussions, Jesse's the, the incredible uh, efforts in putting the website together, uh, Gary the webmaster, uh, keeping the, the website going and making sure all the webinars are, are posted so everybody has the opportunity to go back and listen and re-listen and re-study and, and download things that, like, you know, Terry was talking about, she does all these webinars and there's uh, documents and everything. It's a combination of all of us working, but ultimately it's you guys that do it. We just put the bird feeder out and put the, the feed in it, and you guys feast, and you guys go and get fat and happy and get your big checks and you win your cases, and that makes it all worthwhile to us, believe me. Yep. And and we we've got the bird feeder out, three hundred and sixty eight days a year. That's what we thrive on. Yep. Well, I'll say thanks for putting the bird feeder out. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being a bird. Hey, that's right. You guys have a good thanks time. for being one of the chickadees that that comes to feed. Thank, you know, thank you. whole new whole new concept of Angry Birds, right? Exactly. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Be well, guys. Good night. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Oh yes, it's uh, yeah. The success just it it feeds on itself. It's really great. I love it. All right, we're you know we're bouncing back and forth between Texas and California tonight. You know, I know we got people in other parts of the country that must have questions, but we're going back to Texas. You're unmuted. Oh, all right. How's it going, guys? Good. Good. Yourself? Doing pretty. Doing fairly well. Good. This is this is for you, Dave, and is John on the call tonight? He sure is. Right here. Okay. Okay. How you doing, John? Good. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Excellent. Okay. Here's my question regarding um, uh, on, on an appeal. How much time does the uh, uh, the opposing party have to file, say, a motion to after you file your notice of appeal? How much time would they have to file, say, a motion? to dismiss for any reason. They can't do There's that. There's no motion to appeal. dismiss on an appeal. No. There's no motion to dismiss on an appeal. You have the right to appeal, and all you're doing is filing a notice and telling the court and the other party that you're going to appeal. They can't, they can't do a, a motion to dismiss that. There's, there's no no process for that. They don't have a right to do that. All right. Oh. Do you mean how long do you have to notice the court that you're going to appeal? No, 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 no. After you file your notice of appeal. Then you just move you can... forward and you do your appeal. There, there's no notice. Notice. They can't argue it. That's the bottom line. They can't argue so, it. Okay, so here's the thing. So... They can't file a, note, a motion to dismiss for. What did I? What did I just say? I, I know, but but I, I know, but I'm, but, but let I'm, him finish. I'm, yeah. Yeah. So Go here's ahead. what happened. So I, so I filed my notice of appeal. 
Uh, and about, it was over, over 30 days. So I just got something. Matter of fact, they contacted me and asked me whether or not I would be agreeable to dismissing my appeal. And I said, no. And uh, so they said, well, they're going to file their um, motion to have it dismissed. Now, here's what happened. I filed the notice of appeal. Um, basically, it was filed on the date when I say filed. It was put in the mail uh, one day before it was, it was due. And so what I received from them was a motion to dismiss because of the fact that supposedly they didn't receive, it wasn't filed. Timely. Your, your notice of appeal wasn't timely filed is what they're saying. Right. Yeah. What do the rules say about your filing by mail? When is it considered filed? When you mail it, did you send it certified? Do you have proof of that? Uh, no, I, I didn't send it certified. I, I sent it, uh, uh, it was sent regular mail. And what I've done is this. You know, I looked at the, the, the mailbox rule and it looks at some other things as well. And, I, I mean, there's different, uh, you can find, and also the, uh, in Texas, I think it's for um, district court. And now they have, it, that on the date that you deposit in the mail, that that's the date. Something about long as it's received within ten days, and then they talk about proof. When they talk about proof, basically talk about the envelope. There's certain ways you can go and kind of establish that. Now, one of the things that I was going to do was um, if your post uh, if your postmark shows that you mailed it the day before, usually the courts will accept that. But go ahead. Okay. So, so I guess my question for you guys is this. So, like I said, dealing with a notice of appeal, and, and you have – I've read different things. Like I said, for, for – um, on the compilation, compilation of uh, uh, time, um, it talks about this where you can – it's the date that you put it in the mail. And I've seen some other things. So, it's kind of all across the – all across the That's board. And I'm just trying to see how – or what I can use, number one, number, well, let me back for a second. Number one, since they filed this motion to dismiss because they're saying that it wasn't filed on time, because you guys are saying, well, they can't do that, but, I mean, that's what they've done. No, well, well, that's different than what we were anticipating. So let me ask you a question. <laughs> okay. When you, when you look at the online docket, when you look at PACER, and you see your notice of appeal there, does it have a, a copy of the envelope with it? Uh, no. Matter of fact, I called the court and I asked them, and he said, well, we don't keep copies of the envelope. Well, there you go then. So, you know, the other side's going to complain, but you can submit an affidavit, and they can't rebut your affidavit that you put it on the mail in the mailbox on such and such mm -hmm. date. Right. Now, that's what, I was, that's what I was going to do. I was going to go in and put in an affidavit, the date that it was put in the mail, the address that it was sent to, the amount of postage that was put on it, uh, also in my in the copy that was received by the other side, it's there showing that I certified that I had sent it to them on this particular date. So that's all there. 
But what I've learned now is affidavit is like king. If you go through it and put an affidavit in there, that's like the well, uh, affidavit is sworn testimony presented to the court. Right. right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Okay. Now I I I have to make an obvious comment. Okay. Why do you wait until the last second to do something and invite these potential problems? That's something that you guys can't do. You can't wait till the last second because this is the kind of stuff that you run into. The other thing is, in doing that, if you were mailing it to the court, as important as it is, should have been sent certified mail so you have proof of when you mailed it. If you've got a receipt from the post office, you know, you go there, the post office always gives you a receipt. you got to wait for that little long piece of paper to come out of the machine. Right. And that's going to have the date and time on it, the amount you spent, and it's going to show the exact zip code of where it was going, even if right. you just put regular postage on it. But if you just put stamps on it, then you can't do that, obviously. Okay, let right. me ask you this. Did you put stamps on it, or did you get one of the little machine strips that has a date on it? No, it was, it was a stamp was put on it, because what, ha- what happened was put in the... Okay, and, right. and the copy sent to the opposing counsel, was that with a stamp also? Uh, I believe so. Now, here's the thing, too. Yes, the answer your well, question. Well, no, yes. let me, fin- let me finish okay. a second. Okay. And, and did you mail those both at the same mailbox? Yes, they were, yes. And did you mail them at a mailbox or in the post office? Uh, I think one was actually put inside the um, inside inside, and one was put outside. Well, at the post know, office. Yes, yeah, at the post office. Okay. Yeah, I now, really wouldn't get that, they don't but it's, it's reasonable that it's reasonable that if you mailed them in a mailbox and you right. put them in there at nighttime, that they came out the next day because when they run the mail through the machine, it's going to stamp a date on it, which could be the right. next day. So sure. the law firm might have something that showed a day after you put it in the mailbox. But if you tell them, I put it in such and such a mailbox, then, you know, they're it's hard for them to argue otherwise. And you've got to say if, that in your affidavit. If you suddenly get in that I mailed one inside and one outside, the court's going to be like, well, why'd you do that? Hmm. You know, so be careful what you meter out. You know, you have to think carefully. Yeah, I deposited the- them in mailboxes at the post office. Right, and that's right. what I was going to put. I'm just telling you guys what happened. Yeah, but I'm right. I'm going to say they were they were put inside the post office in the mail slot. Okay, okay. So let me ask you something else. So okay. it, it's on the docket with your district court, and Correct. did they mail did they mail you a transcript information request form? Uh yeah, I have all that. They've actually sent me yes to answer the question. Yes. Okay. Number two, so did you receive any correspondence from the appeals court? Uh, no, this has all been from the uh, the uh, district court. 
Well, typically when you put in a notice of appeal, you receive something from the appeals court too that says, you know, we, your appeal has been transmitted, blah, blah, blah. Did you pay your fee? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, then, and they took your money. So, I mean, they should know that it, so you mailed this to the courthouse and then after the fact, you went in and paid your fee, right? No, it was uh, the, uh, what was it? Money order, whatever was included when I mailed it. Okay. And was the money order dated? Yes. And what date was on the money order? It had the, either the seventh or the eighth on it. I think it had the seventh on it. I have a, I have what, a copy of that. And what's the date that you mailed it? The date it was mailed, the, the actual uh, notice of appeal was mailed. Uh, they would have picked it up the, mor- the morning of the 8th, on the 8th. Yeah, but if it's, well, you need to figure out, again, because if if the if the money order is dated a day before, it's reasonable that, you know, you wouldn't get $505 to mail it late. Right, right. You know, yeah, if the uh, money order receipt says the seventh and you say you mailed it on the seventh, they coordinate with each other. Right. Right. And and you probably, you know, there's no reason you're going to mail money late. Right. Yeah. Not that much money. Right. So. And they're not disputing that. But let me me tell you what happened. So what happened, I'm like, wait a minute now. So. Typically, mail takes no more than about two days. They actually, they being the district court, they put down that they received it on the 14th of April. I'm like, wait a minute now. This was sent to the P.O. box. That would have been the date it was that that it was entered into the docket, not necessarily the date the mail was delivered. Well, they say, well, the day we received it, that's the day that we put it. I'm like, wait a minute. How, how can it take you? So the Friday was the 8th. Then you have Saturday, then Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So seven days for you to receive something going, uh, you know, whatever, 30 miles, 23 miles, 30 miles. Well, I don't know. I, I, you know, know if, that's one of the reasons why it, I guess where. But know, if they ca- if they cashed your money order, if they accepted your money, and you've got an appeal started, they can't very well say it was outside of time. They'd have re- they'd have returned it to you. They can't keep your money and not give you your appeal. Well, here's the thing. See, no, so. I haven't received anything from the court saying that this is from the other side where they filed this motion here saying that. Oh, let them whine. Huh? And of course they're going to whine. Right. If they can. Right. So, so that's where all this is coming from. Um, and, but I was just thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I, I will. First of all, I want to find out from the time I filed my motion, my notice of appeal, more than 30 days has gone by since now they have filed this, their motion. So I'm trying to see, is their, is their motion, did they file it within, t- within time? I mean, is it, is it 21 no, they're, days? They're, they're not dealing with a time element. They're, they're going on the fact they're saying that you were late, 
and they they can do something there. Okay, so they can, so there's no time frame by which they need to file something saying, "Hey, listen, he filed his notice of appeal and he filed it uh, late." Well, you're. I don't think you're going to run into anything where you're going to have anything to stand on there. You're just going to have to make your arguments to their argument. Mm-hmm. You know, you. You know, you you went razor thin on what you were doing. Uh, you know, I don't know what your reasoning was for taking that long. I always did my, you know, anybody I've dealt with and when I did my own appeal, I sent that notice of appeal out right away because you've got 30 days to do it. I, You know, there isn't any reason to wait. Well, I, I don't remember exactly, Dave, exactly what happened, but... Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it is what it is, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, it is. I mean... Right. I, I thought I'd looked at the research and saw that okay, long as if it's postmarked before on or before yeah. the date, then it would be considered yeah. you know. Well, but my my point is, and I want to make this for everybody on the call, and I'm not trying to beat you up or anything. No. Mm-hmm. Do not wait right till the last minute on doing things like this. It mm-hmm. just because if you get away from that, if you just eliminate that. You don't ever find yourself in these situations. You yeah. just don't. And I, right. And normally I tell you, I, I don't. I don't wait till the till the last day. I normally go ahead on and do it beforehand. And yeah. for the most part, too, I will go ahead on and and, uh, and 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 just you know deliver it there. What happened was, uh, for, I, I had to go out of town a lot of time for work, so mm-hmm. I tried to make sure this was done. It was put in the in the mailbox before before I left. Uh, which is what I did, but um, yeah. like I said, just trying to cross all I's and dot all T's, looking at you know the, the, the mailbox rule, um, how that applies, and and they talk about the fact about including an affidavit because you you have your, your your certification page in there that you certify that you sent this to such and such on this day, so so that's there, and they're not really disputing that. They talk about the fact. Well, you know, it was filed by the they were the court on the fourteenth, right? And I'm like, well, okay, you guys—they're not really disputing um, that they didn't receive it on the eighth. They're just talking about well that the courts went in and processed it, put it in. Right. Well, you have you just have to go back and make your argument to the court that you mailed it uh, timely. Right. And and you've got to look for uh, your your case law to show that uh, uh, and whatever like if you've got any local rules that cover it uh, that uh, show that uh, service is uh, perfected upon mailing. Well, now I, yeah, I found that I went through and this is I guess the Supreme Court uh, and it's under time compilation or something like that. I don't have it right in front of me, but it states that. It's the day that you put it in the mailbox. It, that's the day that's considered right. mail. And then it right. goes on to say, as long as they receive it, I think it, within ten days. Okay, well, the that's, that's what day. you're gonna. That's what you're gonna cite in your arguments. Okay, oh, and you're, right. you're gonna and make those specific arguments and cite it if that's what the the uh, case law on it says. 
that right. you know your the evidence is that you mailed it on the seventh. Uh, the money order here's a copy of the money order. It was dated the seventh. It was mailed while I was at the post office when I uh, purchased the uh, money order for payment for the appeals fee, right. and it, it was you know you stated in your affidavit that I mailed it uh, uh, at the post office on that date. And, you know, you don't go into anything about why it was uh, um, filed by the court. No. Because, well, and and the reason is very obvious, because you have no firsthand information as to why that would have occurred. So you don't even go there. You don't even talk about that or make any argument. You just say it was timely mailed. Case law says as long as it's timely mailed and is received within 10 days, well, and it's obvious it was, and the, the court docketed your right. thing, you should right. be good to go. Okay, and that's what I want to be clear on, is whether or not, like, lo- local rules, can you use local rules dealing with... Local uh, rules have the force of the federal rules of civil procedure. Okay, 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 okay. Well, good. Then that's what I'll do. I, I, I have all the information. I just wanted to make sure I had everything so I could tie it together yeah. and put it in an affidavit and state what the what the uh, the local rules are, and then right. then use that uh, in response to yep. what they have submitted to the court. One last question is this: Okay, the time frame when a, a motion like that is is filed with the with the appeals court. Uh, off the top of your head, do you guys know how much time do I have? To respond to what to this motion? The, the, yeah, to the motion that they filed. Yes, I get it done now. Okay. Do not wait. Okay. If you can, if you can get it done competently and file to court tomorrow, it's not too soon. Okay. Do okay. not delay. Don't think you have any kind of time period. Think in terms of I, I got to get this in there right now. Right. Well, I just wanted to verify. I think I said it was maybe like 10 days. I'm like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to make sure I get it done. I said I was going to get it done this week. I I just received it, uh, I think, Mm -hmm. yesterday, and I just said, you know what, I'm going to just go ahead on, get it done, and and get it it in the mail. Yeah, put it right back in their face and put it before the court right away, before the court uh, has an opportunity to just jump out there and and make any kind of a ruling. Yep. Okay. Okay. PDQ. I'll do that. Okay. All righty. Are they arguing this in the appeals court or in the lower court? Well, here's the thing. Uh, they uh, it doesn't have a stamp on it. They uh, you know, they normally you get some from them. They show up. It was just filed on this big day, so there's nothing there. But it's, it has the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals um, style address with it, right? Style, right? Okay. Have you been on Pacer to verify they filed it? I have not yet. I'm going to do that uh, uh, tonight. Because, you know, lawyers are, are notorious for faking people out. Right. And I'm like, wait and, a minute. And, this is normally, and they're going to go ahead. And they're going to start, you know, they do things like, look here, look here, look here, you know, holding their hand up to the left and they hit you with the right hand. And so by distracting you with this whole thing, you're not getting your appeal brief done. One of the right. things you need to do soon because the clock starts running right away on it, is, you know, ask ask them if they'd agree to an enlargement of time for you filing your appeal brief and go for 45 to 60 days. 
Yeah, that, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna do that, it's, and it's uh, to ask that, and just tell them that you know you'd be willing to reciprocate if they do that, right? Um, you know, and uh, you know that's that's reason, that's reasonable. Right. Now I have an attorney, though. I think I'm gonna let them. They're gonna be. Ta- they're gonna take care of of dealing with the appeal, but this part here, I just wanted to get questions asked and answered regarding uh, what they had sent to me, but I'm going to go ahead and get the, uh, get my information sent off to them here, uh, ASAP. And, uh, mm-hmm. cause I did receive a notice from them telling me, I think it was the 11th of this month to go ahead and proceed with my, uh, my appeal, but they didn't, you know, they didn't specify how much time you have. Is that normal? Or don't they normally tell you, Hey, you have X, Y, Z amount of time to go through and, 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 and to prepare your brief. Yeah. Well, they, they will, but I've had, you know, you'll get a letter from, from the uh, clerk that's handling it and they're going to give you your case number and all this other stuff. But I've gotten a letter from them and found out that, you know, like 15 of my days had elapsed already and kind of like I should have known better. So don't wait for them. The rules, right. the rules read from the time your appeal is docketed, the clock starts ticking. So, okay. and and you need to get your motion in 14 days before the deadline if you're going to go for a large amount of days. So you need yep. to confer with the other side soon. And just because they filed this motion, no matter what they tell you, if if you follow what I've shown you in the webinars, you send them an email and, you know, dear, dear Mr. Mack, my appeal brief is due on uh, July 15th uh, because of personal time constraints and, you know, other matters. And, and my dog ran away and I got to find it. I got to, uh, I need 60 days additional time to, uh, to write fully research and brief my brief and have it bound and uh, properly printed and uh, packaged and mailed to the court. Therefore, I need 60 days, which is reasonable, blah, blah, blah. Do you agree? I'd be happy to reciprocate with you if you do. And and you send an email like that. What are they going to do? They're not going to argue with you. If they do, they look like a dick. You know, because whatever your email is, when they reply to it, you file that in as the exhibit to your motion for the enlargement of time. It's either a motion, you know, uh, that's unopposed or a motion that's opposed or a motion that, you know, you couldn't determine because they didn't respond to you. That doesn't look good. The appeals court is a higher... They operate a whole different way. You know, right. they, okay. they really do. And you need to be thinking in terms of doesn't matter that there's icebergs in the water and all this other stuff. I'm just going forward and I'm going forward with my appeal. Yes, you got to deal with this other thing, but the main focus is the appeal. And it's going to throw the other side off if you're asking for an enlargement of time now where they're hoping to distract you. Right, okay. Okay, but you still okay. have to answer what they're saying, and the big thing is going to be, you know, the fact that you have a declaration to go with it that you did this and that, and with your declaration, a copy of the check that the district court cashed, you know, that shows the date, as long as your date's correct and everything, that you right. filed it with, you know, you did it within the period of time allowed. Okay. Okay. You know that's okay. that's. You know, don't make a big deal out of it. It should be pretty clear cut on your side. 
Well, it is on, it is on mine. Like I say, I, I was going to make sure I, I included that affidavit in there and go and give the details about when it was put in the drop, uh, uh, when it was uh, put in the post office, uh, what was on there, that it was addressed to the, the proper address, uh, that information, and then go ahead on and then file that uh, uh, in response to what they have sent. And then also, like I said, go ahead on and, and, and file the, uh, uh, confer with the other side. Uh, regarding uh, these 60 days uh, uh, extension of time to file my uh, my brief. Okay, well, let us know how it goes. Will do. Appreciate it, guys. Have a good one. All righty. Thank you. you. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, everybody. It's just about that time, and I don't see another hand up. So we're going to go ahead and call it a wrap for tonight. Uh, I want to thank everybody for uh, joining us tonight. Thank you, uh, uh, John and Terry. Uh, Jeff wasn't with us tonight. He has uh, some other things that uh, he had to take care of. And tomorrow night we have an open call, and that's at Blog Talk Radio. And if you want to find that, just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash W-L-I-Y-D. And that call starts at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. And, of course, then on Wednesday afternoon at 3 o'clock Eastern Time again, we have our members-only webinar that's open Q&A with all the moderators, including Mr. Jesse himself. And that's uh, that's always a pretty popular situation because people, uh, all the members of the website, get to ask questions on any subject. It's not uh, just limited to uh, subject matter of one specific thing. So three o'clock Eastern. If you're not a member, you know, go go break your piggy bank and get a hundred pennies out of it because it only costs you a dollar to become a member. And uh, get yourself in there. Knockoutcollectors.net. Just go there. That'll uh, take you to Jesse's website. Hit the big red uh, Join Now button and uh, just follow the instructions. Then, of course, Wednesday night at 8 o'clock Eastern is Terry's call. And if for some unknown reason you don't happen to be on her email list for reminders, just send an email to queensongbird at gmail.com and just say, please put me on the list. Put it in the subject line if you like. But just uh, say you want to be on the list. And do that right away tonight. Uh, don't wait until Wednesday because you probably won't get the reminder in time. So that's what we're here for is to help you guys. It's all up to you. We just put the bird feeder out. It's up to you guys to feed to your heart's content. So, again, thanks to the other moderators and everybody for joining us. And if you are on Blog Talk Radio tomorrow night, You'll probably hear my voice, unless I get run over by a truck in the meantime. I'll Good night, everybody. Yeah. Good night. Try, try and stay out of the road. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Good night. Good night.